0: Welcome to COG, where we discuss current issues in women's health. This month on COG, we're talking Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS, with Dr. Amanika Kuma, a gynaec oncologist from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Then we'll look at a selection of studies from the latest literature. My name is Rachel Nugent. I'm an obstetrician and gynaecologist from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and I'd like to welcome my co-host, Ted Weaver.
1: Good morning. How are you?
0: Great, Ted. How was your holiday?
1: holiday was fantastic. The Highlands of Scotland are a beautiful place. We're back in regional Australia talking about enhanced recovery after surgery. I think it's really timely that we do this because I think this is something that in Australia is really done fairly poorly. If you really looked at the amount that surgical care adds to our healthcare budget, it's massive. And if we could do things with enhanced recovery after surgery to ensure that people were discharged home in a much more timely way that they avoided prolonged expensive hospitalisation if we can avoid some of the aspects of our post-operative care that have been shown to cause harm such as prolonged use of opioid analgesia I think we'd be doing the community at large a great service saving our health services a lot of money probably most importantly improving patient outcomes because I think the evidence is really quite compelling
0: Certainly from the review we've done for this episode, I think healthcare providers really need to start looking or justifying as to why they're not using enhanced recovery after surgery protocols rather than paying themselves on the back for doing it because it really stacks up to improve patient outcomes, opioid use, less cost without any uh, significant worsening of readmission rates or complications after surgery.
1: I was thinking about this why it hasn't been adopted and I can easily see why it hasn't been adopted because it involves a significant change of practice and it involves us working in a multidisciplinary team. There are elements here, both preoperatively, interoperatively and postoperatively that will require people to make significant changes in the way that they practice. And I would suspect the fact that, that it will involve various members of the healthcare team making changes to practice will be the biggest barrier the adoption of an ERAS strategy.
0: Certainly, Monica speaks to that. When I talk with her, you can't just lead as the surgeon in this intervention. You really need to get your team organised beforehand and make sure everyone's on board before you try and roll out one of these kind of protocols.
1: And not the least part of that, of course, will be managing patient expectations. People always think that if they're coming into hospital, my mother had one of those and she spent five or six days in hospital, therefore I should too. People often view a spell in hospital as a chance to rest and to recover from surgery when we know that hospitals are dangerous places and nosocomial infections are the least of our problems with reduction in numbers of effective antibiotics, again being the biggest um, spectre on the medical horizon in my view. It's important that, that we're able to manage patients um, effectively, but preferably in their own environment when we know that people's recovery is generally going to be better than in a hospital environment.
0: So I think we really need to get proactive in Australia about this issue because I feel like we're way behind the world in introducing enhanced recovery protocols, particularly for benign gynecological surgery. So I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Amanika Kumar. I had a great chat with her at the ACOG meeting in Texas. And then, of course, as always, we'll follow with Journal Club. Today on COG, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Amanika Kumar from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She's a gynecological oncologist there Mm -hmm. uh, and she's very kindly agreed to talk to me about ERAS or uh, enhanced recovery after surgery. Thanks for joining us on Koga Monica. Thank you for having us. So the Mayo Clinic was one of the leaders in the development of ERAS in gynecology. How did that come about?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, it actually predated my joining of Mayo Clinic. Um, I joined Mayo Clinic in 2013 as a fellow and have stayed on as faculty. But prior to that, some um, great leadership, and um, both in my department as well as in other departments in the institution, really started taking a critical eye to how do patients recover from surgery and how do we improve both the patient experience and value in healthcare. And so that started a lot, started actually in our anesthesia department and our colorectal surgery department. And then um, Dr. Sean Doughty kind of took this on. Um, and in 2011 is when we instituted a formal program and quality improvement program in our department. From what I understand it,
0: took a number of years to get to that point. So the mm. idea was there, I believe, in 2008, yeah, and to actually get it to the point of an up-and-running program took about three years to get all the interested stakeholders to get buy-in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, that it was a little bit of an uphill battle, even more so, you know, people, ERAS is like a phrase people know now, it was unheard of at that point and it sounds so obvious cuz we're using evidence to dictate how we are going to treat patients postoperatively but surgical postoperative plans and recovery and paradigm was is really deeply entrenched in medicine like mm-hmm. many things in medicine you know our beliefs and how we were taught it's really hard to question it sometimes and so To have someone who started questioning it and then letting people be open-minded enough to start thinking about it um, took a long time. And I I think that that's one of the battles. And hopefully, you know, the work that Dr. Dowdy did and um, the rest of the department, as well as lots of other great institutions, has paved the way so that now institutions can kind of talk about ERAS in their own programs and people have a a different attitude towards it.
0: I'll come back to that pushing the edge of what you're comfortable with, because that's certainly uh, been raised at this meeting a couple of times for me, as happens at all good meetings. But first, I'd just like to dive into what are the key tenets of enhanced recovery after surgery?
2: Yeah, so I think some of the key tenets first is an understanding of the stress and physiologic stress and catabolism that occurs by the inflammatory reaction to surgery. And if we understand that physiology of having an increased stress response, increased sympathetic nervous system response, and insulin resistance, then we can say maintaining normal physiology or trying to help and assist the patient get back to normal physiology is so important. And so that is certainly, um, I think, the underlying biology to why enhanced recovery can make sense. Some of the tenets that I think are the most important have to do with euvelemia. So what we, I talk about this a lot, about maintaining a not, not a very restrictive practice, not a very liberal fluid practice, but just right in the middle and euvelemia is key. And it is part of our pre-intra and post-operative plan. The second is early ambulation and early post-operative feeding, um, that sort of bed rest and bowel rest does not have any evidence behind it, and really getting patients up and about and eating um, is important to maintaining nutrition and decreasing the loss of muscle mass. And then finally, um, pain control, you know, adequate pain control, and it's certainly in the setting of the opioid epidemic, being really thoughtful of how do we make sure that we do the best thing for our patients and make sure that they're not in pain, but we're also not having bad side effects from the risk of narcotic addiction.
0: I just want to kind of work through it in a logical manner Hmm. because it's quite simple, but there's also a bit to it. It's essentially divided into three phases. So the pre-op phase, the intraoperative phase, and the post-op phase. Hmm. So pre-operatively, you talked today a bit about the management of anxiety in the pre-op setting. How does that look?
2: Yeah. You know, I think a good rule of perioperative care, but also I kind of think in life is managing expectations. And so, um, you know, we talk about communication within the health system when we're instituting a new program, but I think communication with patients and families is such an important part in getting patients um, to the best of their capacity and your capacity prepared for surgery through the fears of surgery, but also what to expect postoperatively, you know. Um, Things like we tell patients why we don't do bowel preps. We tell patients about why we want them to do the preoperative glucose load. We talk to them about our expectation for being out of bed so that on post-op day zero and one, when we're trying to get them out of the bed and they are in pain or they um, are tired, they have heard it before, getting catheters out quickly talking about VTE prophylaxis in the oncology patient population, we actually use uh, subcutaneous lovinox for our patients and so having that preparation and then same with families, you know having families not being like no, you should stay in bed because you just had surgery or shouldn't we um, they can't eat that or whatever you know having them understand that if there is a thoughtful process, and getting them prepared for that is really important. And that I think managing expectations and understanding what does post op recovery look like does decrease some of the anxiety.
0: What kind of resources do you use to facilitate those discussions?
2: Yeah, so we, we are lucky that we have a really great preoperative uh, nursing team that works with us as surgeons. And again, it really does take a team. We also have an anesthesia team with um, nurses and CRNAs and then anesthesia physicians who will work with patients. I think the best resources are in the outpatient setting. When we've talked to the patient about surgery and the surgical plan, at that same visit, our nurses meet with the patient and their families for um, about a half hour to talk about the preoperative um, teaching. You know, so some of it's just... You know, things like where to show up and when to show up, all the logistics, but also included in that, and is a um, they go through a very specific pamphlet about enhanced recovery. And I think it normalizes it. So we say, we're able to say at Mayo Clinic in this department, we use an enhanced recovery surgical program. And so patients know that they're part of how we do normal post operative practice. And the
0: naming is quite useful because it sounds
2: excellent. Yes, because it is excellent. It's positive. (laughs) That's not an accident. Yeah, and uh, and I think patients, again, feel like they then get some ownership. You know, I have patients who, like, take pride in, you know, I put the box on their uh, whiteboard in their room of the number of walks they're supposed to get, and they get excited to tell me that they got all those boxes crossed off or whatever it is. And giving them some agency and power, especially in a setting, I think no matter what, no matter what kind of surgery you're undergoing, but particularly for the surgeries we do for cancer, Mm -hmm. patients are feeling really disempowered. And if we can give power back in these little ways and give them some ownership over their health and their health outcomes, I think that's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned bowel prep. Mm -hmm. So who gets bowel prep? We don't bowel prep really anyone in our institution, or sorry, I should say in our division anymore. Um, so even patients that we are expecting a bowel resection, which is forty to sixty percent of our ovarian cancer patients, we don't utilize bowel preps for.
0: And you haven't seen any reduction in outcome measures for that group in terms of postoperative infection and.
2: Yeah, no. And I, in fact, the evidence actually kind of speaks to the opposite that. The use of bowel preps can increase uh, an astomotic leak and infection. There's, cert- there's some new data within the colorectal surgery outcomes that um, have argued against that. I think the debate is somewhat ongoing where uh, some of our colorectal colleagues have taken back antibiotic preparations prior to surgery and bowel preps. We as a division have talked a lot about it. Um, our anastomatic leak rate is very low, and so we have not taken those bowel preps back. I think one of the key things is that instead of using our historic learning and practices, we're gonna to try to continue to apply practice-based medicine, or evidence-based medicine, sorry, and to inform our practice and help our patients it's certainly a hotly debated topic within GYN oncology and in colorectal surgery, and you know I think we'll continue to see the needle continue to move. One of the um, other things we've done in our institution is an anastomonic leak reduction project, and so in our division, we looked at our anastomonic leaks, and then similar to uh, ERAS, but in a smaller... Projects using PDSA cycles, we've looked at the problem, thought about different interventions and try to reduce our rate of anastomotic leak. That project did overlap to our ERAS project, so it's hard to know what did what in any intervention, you know, which actually led to the improvement of anastomotic leak. But I think that reinstituting bowel preps that can lead to that dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, patient death satisfaction, we just don't have... A reason to do that right now.
0: You talked about avoiding dehydration or overhydration, and you said that uvolemia is quite important. I appreciate that you work in an oncological setting. Yes. How important do you think that aspect is in benign gynecological surgery?
2: Yeah, I actually think it's probably even more important because you can really get a patient off track by Overhydrating. I would say the most common thing you see in the perioperative setting is probably overhydration. And people would get, you know, five, six, seven liters of fluid for a robotic hysterectomy, and they would come out all swollen. They would come out with pulmonary edema and bowel edema, and that led to ileus. And so in an ovarian cancer patient where you've been open for eight hours and They're going to be in the hospital for five or six days. We certainly have a great impact with fluid, right? So because those patients, usually get 20 liters of fluid. But I I think the um, influence is the same in minimally invasive surgery. Particularly, we do a lot of robotic surgery in our institution or robotic-assisted laparoscopic surgery, and getting a plan for intraoperative blood pressure monitoring is really important so that you can use the intraoperative blood pressures to direct fluid management rather than just giving every patient the same amount of fluid resuscitation. Directed instead of just blind, exactly pouring it in. Yep. It was
0: also mentioned the use of corticosteroids during induction of anesthesia. Um, I'm just wondering what benefits that uh, gives to the ERAS protocol.
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest benefits is an anti nausea benefit. So we really think about anti emetics from our anesthesiologists and how do we um, decrease post operative nausea. Our anesthesia group ha- uses routinely two classes of anti emetics for every patient, and sometimes up to three or four, depending on the patient factors, If especially patients who have a history of post nausea and vomiting. That goes a long way for their postoperative.
0: So in terms of post-operative recovery, uh, you mentioned some important aspects of, of ERAS is early ambulation, early eating, early IDC removal, which and nasogastric
2: uh, tube removal, which feeds into those two mm-hmm. things. How early is early? Yeah, so we get patients up on post-up day zero, and that includes our laparotomies for a long period of time, but we also... We're with our nursing staff, so I think this goes again towards that communication with your stakeholders and buy-in from stakeholders. I think if everyone's on the same page, we all are grouped around the fact that the patient outcomes is the most important, and our we had to work with our nursing staff. Quite frankly, I'm not in the post-op room getting the patient up, and so. You can't not listen to what your nursing staff is saying about when someone is ready to get up. What you also have to know is that your nursing staff on the floor and your CAs on the floor believe in the same concepts and understand the goal of early ambulation and why. And that when they say to me, for example, this patient, we try to get up and we can't, I believe them. That that patient wasn't ready. But our goal is within four hours of hitting the bed that they can get up. Um, and sometimes it's just dangling their feet. Sometimes it's just standing at the side of the bed. Sometimes it's taking a walk around the unit. Every patient's a little different. As far as feeding, again, similarly, we let people start. And you know, I, and you want people to go back to eating whatever feels right, but we also don't force them to eat anything Um and so fluids is what most people start with, but we give people a general diet um, and we encourage them to eat and feed their gut, but also encourage them, again, we believe our patients are the, an important team member. If a patient says, I'm nauseous and I can't eat, they're probably nauseous and can't eat and that's okay. And then a catheter removal, I, you know, I mentioned this, um, that to me is one of, it sounds so simple, just take the catheter out. But if you as a surgeon haven't thought about the downstream effects of that, and all the other people who are impacted by the catheter removal, you're going to take that out either too early or too late. And so early, the earliest, the best. We have a process and a workflow that allows us to take a catheter out at the end of surgery in the operating room. That helps us because we know for sure it's out, and we don't have to rely on an order to do it. But we also have patients who will hit the floor. We rarely have, like, a hold up in our you where patients are not able to get into their floor room because there's not room. If you, uh, I mentioned in my other training program, I would, uh, patients sometimes got held up in the post-operative recovery unit because they didn't have room on the floor yet. And, it, and that post-operative anesthesia recovery unit was just not equipped to take care of getting patients up into the bathroom or doing intermittent catheterization if they had retention. So I think you have to be thoughtful.
0: So a really important aspect of ERAS is analgesia. Hysterectomy is major surgery. It seems fair to prescribe analgesia for that, but ERAS talks about multimodal analgesia and reducing prescription of opioids. Why should we try and decrease opioid prescription?
2: Yeah, I mean I think that's a great question and it's important not just for ERAS and bowel recovery and but also in the setting again of the opioid epidemic. So any kind of systemic medication or systemic treatment is going to have effects not just on pain but are going to have effects on bowel, it's going to have effects on bladder, it's going to have effects on mental capacity, fall risk of course that being said, we also have to make sure the needle doesn't swing to not treating post-operative pain. So we, again, as like another sub quality improvement project within our surgical department have started doing, you know, so we use multimodal pain um, control. We use Tylenol and NSAIDs. And then we also use Tramadol often, and then opioids, both oral and IV, as needed. And I think key is that those have to be available to patients as needed, but have to be not given liberally, and instead be given in um, you know an opioid sparing fashion. And then I also think there's non-narcotic ways, non-medication ways of taking care of pain, such as things like aromatherapy, massage mindfulness. uh, Those are all practices that are really important. And finally, intraoperative things like um, incision, infiltration with local anesthetic, tap blocks, epidurals, and spinals. Although, like I've said, epidurals can really work against your other uh, ERAS pathway goals.
0: You mentioned at Mayo,
2: you've gone away from the
0: use of epidurals. In our division. In gynecology only.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and gynecology, I should say, in general. Um, not all of, like, for example, our colorectal surgeons still use epidurals quite a bit, but they use spinals more than epidurals, which then are shorter acting. Um, and so for opioids, for example, we assess each patient. We uh, Mayo, I wasn't involved in the study, but the Department of Surgery did a study looking back at how much opioids were prescribed to patients, 80% of people did not use the opioids that they were prescribed, and only about 10 or 20%, I may I would have to look back at exactly the number actually disposed of those, leading to those opioids being able to be used and be diverted to other people for other needs. Um, and that's really dangerous, and that, that has really led to some of the problems we have, and I've actually taken to, when I counsel patients about my postoperative surgical risks, when I talk about bleeding and I talk about injury to other organs and I talk about infection, I talk about narcotic addiction as a surgical complication because it truly is. And so, again, by doing that, you get patients on board and part of the team is saying, I don't want that to happen either. And so on the day of discharge, we talk about what did the patient use in the prior 24 hours as far as narcotics and then we prescribe the number of narcotics that is reasonable so instead of giving you know when i trained we just wrote a prescription for 30 pills for everyone everyone a gets a book yeah. yeah exactly and you know and i was a first year i would go home and at night i would write all the prescriptions out for every patient that i knew i had a discharge on uh, the postpartum floor, who had a C-section, or on the gynecologic floor, who had a hysterectomy that day, you just pre-wrote the prescriptions, you yeah, regardless of the patient. And so now we're saying this should be patient-centered and patient-specific, and it should be specific to their the patients and their needs, and specific to the procedure they had. Now, one of the challenges I think is the patients who leave the same day, because a fair no- number of gynecologic patients leave the same day, so. We have reduced the number of narcotics we give to them, um, and we're actually watching that. So one of the important parts of quality improvement is to look at what is the measure that you're going to look at, you know, how are patients, um, how is the number of narcotics being distributed for those same-day discharges, how is that decreased? And then we have this countermeasure, and for that project, again, we're looking at how many people call in needing a second prescription or how many people call in with inadequate pain control. And I, I'm not running that project. Uh, Dr. Gretchen Glazer and Dr. Sean Dowdy at my division are. But overall, anecdotally, at least I would say it's really minimal. And quite frankly, sort of the rule of thumb is if you have someone who went minimally invasive surgery and they're having more pain than expected, probably want to evaluate them, right? Mm. And you so don't really if, want
0: to send that home to... Exactly. Uh, eventuate into some kind of major intra abdominal pathology.
2: Exactly, you know, and just be covering it up with pain meds. So there are patients who need more pain meds, and I think individualizing that is key. You mentioned a local anesthetic infiltration and
0: a liposomal bupivacaine. Uh, has been mentioned several times during this conference. What's its role in post-op pain control?
2: Yeah, so we have found that our patients with undergoing minimally invasive surgery actually use so low, small amount of narcotics. We have actually not used it just because of the cost. But Because it is quite a prohibitive It is expensive, yeah. yeah. Um, so for patients, though, who you would otherwise think about spinal, tap block or PCAs for, or liberal use of narcotics, we use liposomal bupivacaine as infiltration in a laparotomy. The other place I sometimes will actually utilize it is in a patient who's had either a pain, narcotic addiction, or someone who's committed to saying, I don't want to use any narcotics for whatever reason. So even if they have had like a mini lap where I normally wouldn't, but any laparotomy I do use it for. And it works great. You can actually use both short-acting and long-acting bupivacaine together. We dilute it with saline to kind of cover the entire wound area. And we found a huge reduction in our narcotic use and our PCA use with that. And to the point that for our complex laparotomies, it actually is cost-neutral. So is there
0: a role for PCAs in the post-operative uh, patient?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think... Again, what we don't want to do is have the pendulum swing to an old, old practice of not really taking care of patients postoperative pain. So there are some patients who are not going to have adequate control with oral drugs or non-opioid drugs, there's also some patients who are going to develop an ileus. There are patients who are going to develop a point where they can't have oral anything. And I think PCAs are important. So just thinking about that, but instead of saying, okay, we routinely start a PCA for everyone. And so that's an, a post-op pain. Um, I spent a lot of time taking care of cancer pain. That's an entirely different thing. And so one of the things that I always caution about, I think this the discussion around restrictive narcotic use is really important. One of the things in the back of my head as an oncologist that I don't wanna become a inadvertent side effect of us addressing narcotics addiction is that we all of a sudden have a restrictive practice to our cancer pain patients or our palliative and hospice patients. What we don't wanna do is take away access to those patients, so I think it's really important to think of post-operative of pain as acute pain in which we should have a uh, sparing use of opioids for the shortest amount of time, the smallest amount possible, and that must be separated from cancer pain. So let's
0: come to pushing my edge. Mm-hmm. So I've heard quite a bit during this conference about same-day discharge after hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. That is not a practice that I'm familiar with uh, in my institution or in any of the institutions I've worked with uh, in Queensland, in Australia, do you have any tips for instituting a same-day discharge after hysterectomy program or moving towards that?
2: Yeah. You know, that to me sounds, it depends on your institution, but it sounds ripe for a really good PDSA cycle. And, uh, and that's Plan to Study Act, which is a quick quality improvement And what I always tell people with any kind of quality improvement or when you, especially when you're sort of like the champion, to say, let's try this, pick some low-hanging fruit. So take your, like, young, healthy person who lives in town getting a hysterectomy who is motivated to go home that day and try to be find some success in a few patients. And also don't be dogmatic about it, right? So if you have someone who is postoperatively post-operatively nauseous and uh, has pain don't try to send that patient home they're going to end up in the ER and all you need to do is try this program end up with a couple patients in the ER that night that you have to go readmit and people are going to see see this program doesn't work you need to hit it out the ballpark and have some good successes first and it's for the right patient so if I have a patient who's traveled for four hours it's not a great same day discharge patient if I have someone in town who is having first surgery of the day, you know, and they're by five o'clock, I can see them and they're peeing, eating, their pain's controlled and they're not nauseous. That's a great candidate, Meeting, setting expectations, right? So if you tell patients, you're gonna probably spend the night, they're gonna spend the night. If you tell them you're gonna go home after surgery, they might be taken aback at first, but if that's their expectation, then they're going to say, I'm going to go home that same day, and if I don't go home, then that's the um, oddity, not the norm. Okay. But I would say just try it.
0: Yeah, well, I, I love that framework, mm-hmm. you know, that PDSA. Like, so approach it as there's a framework here mm-hmm. to do this project. Mm-hmm. You don't have to reinvent the wheel and just yeah. go out on a limb. There's a way to do it and do it well.
2: Yeah, and I think sometimes like universally putting in a program like that works, but have your inclusion criteria really strict. You know, don't have patients that, you know, you could say I'm only going to send my young, benign hysterectomies home who are living within 30 miles of our surgical center as those are the criteria.
0: Mm. I understand you, are that may has gone through a number of uh, transformations and you've actually discussed a lot of them mm-hmm. while you've been here. What kind of tools do you use to to affect that progression?
2: So we, uh, you know, I'm lucky to be in an institution that really believes in team medicine and that has nothing to do with, like, we didn't bring that. Mayo as an institution believes in team-based healthcare And so it's kind of ripe for team-based change and change management. We also have something called our Quality Improvement Academy, where we as providers, as nurses, as allied health staff, all get an opportunity to learn about change management tools, including PDSA, which is Plan, Do, Study, Act I mentioned, which is just a framework for change management, DMAIC-DM, AIC is also another, that's Define, Measure, Analyze, Improve, and Control. And then um, Lean and Six Sigma, again, this comes from change management, really comes from the business world. They're all tools that are just frameworks. We, we're, we happen to be very lucky that we get training in this, but then we also have administrators and also quality specific people who can help us through projects. Um, and I think that helps us stay on track, you know, utilizing everyone for their expertise. And like I said, communication and then measuring is really important. I think as scientists and physicians, we like to see the data and we like to say, okay, what did it look like? What, did, what was your measure that you looked at? What was the countermeasure? And did we actually affect improvement and not have, you know, something, a bad outcome that we didn't anticipate and so and then communicating that back to your stakeholders often is really helpful.
0: So for individuals listening out there thinking they might want to start an ERAS program at their hospital, what's your advice?
2: Yeah, so I think if you want to start one, I would say you should do it for sure. I mean I think that that we have shown again in different surgical subspecialties, certainly in gynecology, different institutions, that it's possible to do and it does improve patient outcomes. I think the first step is just sitting and thinking about what are who are the stakeholders in my institution and who are the stakeholders I can get energized and enthusiastic and committed to this kind of project in assembling your team of stakeholders. And there's something in quality improvement called a stakeholder analysis that's basically just exactly what it sounds like, sitting down and saying, who are all the different point people, including administration, anesthesia, nursing teams, schedulers, all sitting around and getting a member of all those, and then really trying to get some buy-in. I think getting institutional and departmental buy-in is really important as well. So if you have this idea and you are in the leadership, great. But if you're not in leadership in your department in your institution, you know, assembling a team, assembling a plan, or what is your goal and presenting that early and often to your institutional leadership to get their buy-in can is immensely uh, helpful. I was interested to hear the concept of uh,
0: champions. So often projects have one champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but consistently, the message has been presented that it, when you're assembling your team, each aspect mm-hmm. uh, needs a champion. yeah because and it makes sense because you'll get that uh, activation energy. Mm-hmm. And when things get tough, you'll support each other through it. But I think that was a really useful yeah. way to frame it.
2: And you know, I mean surgeons are the we're the worst at it, right? If you have someone, an anesthesiologist champion telling you what to do, you're going to listen to it less than if your surgeon colleague tells you what to do because you think the surgeon understands your perspective and understands where you're coming from and your patients are coming from. And so I think every kind of group of stakeholders is the same way.
0: Thank you so much, Monica, yeah. for spending some time with me today. I know you've got a busy schedule No, here. this is great. I appreciate you joining me on COG.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this thank is great. You. So, that was Amanika
0: Kumar from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester talking about enhanced recovery after surgery. Next up, Journal Club. And this week on Journal Club, we have three offerings from the latest literature focusing on enhanced recovery after surgery. first offering for Journal Club is from the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology of Canada and it was published in 2018. It's by Alicia Nenzi and her colleagues from Ontario, And their study is called Implementation of Same-Day Discharge Protocol Following Total Laparoscopic Hysterectomy. What do you think our current percentage of same-day discharges at this institution following laparoscopic hysterectomy?
1: I don't know exactly, but my strong suspicion is that it's zero.
0: Yes, and so I think this has been a real eye-opener for me looking at you know, all this information and finding out that in our own hospital on the Sunshine Coast, we could certainly do much better by our women. So, this was a prospective cohort study of 129 patients. The primary outcome was length of stay, but they also looked at secondary outcomes like readmission rates and periop complications, following the implementation of a same day discharge protocol for TLH. This was prospectively collected data. The control was a retrospective cohort who had TLHs performed a year prior to the introduction of the same-day discharge protocol. The operations were performed by general gynecologists, and so they compared the data of the prospectively collected cohort against the retrospective cohort. It was performed over two institutions with 11 of 16 surgeons uh, participating. So I think it's important to talk about what the protocol was. And as with all ERAS protocols, there's a perioperative phase, an intraoperative phase, and a postoperative phase uh, with follow-up. Again, we stress that ERAS protocols are not just about what happens in the operating theatre, but also what happens before and after surgery requiring a whole-of-team approach.
1: Rachel, I think at this point it, it's probably reasonable just to give the listenership an idea of what a typical ERAS program might look like. And I think that, as Rachel said, I think that it's important to think that it's not just the, the actual active surgery that, that's important and the post-operative care, it's all the pre-operative workup that goes into the management of the patient. If you're looking at the patient preoperatively, well, I, th- I think the important things that have been noted in ERAS protocols have been it's very important to medically optimise any chronic disease that a patient may have, and obviously we're in the midst of the obesity epidemic in Australia, so many people have chronic diseases. Many older people, who are of course much more likely to have surgery, have chronic disease. But it's important that that chronic disease is optimised. It's important that patients are eating a healthy way before their surgery for some time so that, that they should receive nutritional advice. It's interesting that that um, in the ERAS protocols, they all allow oral intake of clear fluids up to two hours before the induction of anesthesia. There's emphasis on carbohydrate loading, avoidance of mechanical bowel preparation. And then um, and once the patients had their procedure, then there's a lot of effort put into opioid sparing, multimodal analgesia regimes, Effective use of surgical drains, emphasis on early ambulation and feeding. So these are the sort of things that that would make up an ERAS protocol with, of course, an emphasis on minimally invasive surgery during the intraoperative time. So I think it's important that listeners view this as a continuum, that the patients are identified, that they're prepared, they go through their minimally invasive procedure, and then there's a concerted team effort to manage their pain manage their post-operative problems, manage their post-operative expectations and look, look at um, early ambulation and, and discharge from hospital with a follow-up program in a home.
0: A big part of the protocols is patient education. So patients are educated pre-operatively and then given an information sheet immediately post-operatively with clear instructions about who to call and when to call. In this particular study done in Ontario, there were certain social factors that meant a woman was excluded. To be included, women had to be capable of providing consent following medical instructions. Uh, They had to have support at home immediately post-operatively and they had to be reachable by phone. And they also had to be able to return to hospital if required. So uh, while people are going home the same day, it's important to have capability, of course, for them to return to hospital or to get in touch with the team if they aren't well and there's a problem and they need to come back. Um, So overall, in the pre-implementation group, the post implementation group, both groups were similar for age, BMI and ASA class. Interestingly, before implementation of protocol, 17% of patients were discharged same day, whereas 79% of patients were discharged same day after implementation of the protocol. So this was uh, a resoundingly successful implementation program for these two hospitals. That's a more, more than fourfold increase in same-day discharge. The primary outcome was length of stay and it was significantly reduced from 0.9 days to 0.25 days. The only significant difference between the two groups was the operating time difference. So in the control group average operating time was 185 minutes versus the post ERAS protocol group was 165 minutes. I wonder if that would have some impact on the results um, given that operating time usually reflects uh, complexity of the case but I don't think that 20 minute difference can account for a fourfold increase in same-day discharge. Importantly when these authors looked at the secondary outcomes This approach appears to be safe because there's no significant increase in intraoperative complications or admission rates. They also did a patient satisfaction score in the women participating in the post-implementation group. And women overall were very, very satisfied with the care that they received, whether they were discharged same day, day one or day two. So I think this study has a number of strengths. It was conducted by multiple surgeons across multiple facilities in training hospitals. So I think that makes it a very generalizable study for how we approach TLH here in Australia. And another thing to note is that only about 3% of patients declined to participate in this study. So that suggests that this intervention is very acceptable to patients. So overall, I think uh, same-day discharge for TLH is a safe procedure if the correct patients are selected and it appears it is very achievable with implementation of a protocol.
1: Oh, I agree. And I think it's about being the team together, developing a protocol, managing patient expectations. Patient education is critical. Also, I think you'd have to do a lot of work in educating the community healthcare providers, general practitioners and so on, who may be the first port of call in the event that the patient has a problem. So I think we'd have to make sure that we had very good protocols in place for what to do should should an emergency situation arise. We need to make sure that there was excellent feedback and clinical handover given back to the, the primary care providers in the community, and that um, there were mechanisms that, that patients knew about and there was some recognition or understanding that patients had about what warning signs might be. And then, of course, we would need to be looking at at an audit of the program ultimately taking into account of course um, um, patient experience as, as part of that audit i think because you might think we're doing good but then patients may have a different view but overall i thought i think the study is good and i agree with you that one of the strengths of the study is that it was done across multiple sites and that it was done in a training hospital because one of the concerns that we have is that, that if trainees are involved in care that is if, if people are getting less than consultant care, then that will have an impact because trainees inevitably will take longer than consultants in performance of various procedures. Now, the learning curve for a total laparoscopic hysterectomy can be fairly long for some practitioners.
0: The so message is uh, this is a team game and if you want to introduce a protocol like this in your hospital, it's really important to get all the interested stakeholders board and develop a protocol ever, so that you can start improving patient
1: outcomes. I agree. The next study that we looked at is similar, except it was done on cancer patients. The study was entitled, The Effect of an Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Program on Opioid Use and Patient-Reported Outcomes. It was done at the MD Anderson Hospital from Houston in Texas, and I was very happy to see that one of the authors was Pedro Ramirez, a gynae-oncologist who was one of the keynote speakers at the Ranskog CIG World Congress in Brisbane in 2015. And looking at what Joe and his group have done, it was a study that was very similar in design to the one that Rachel described in the first one, where they looked at some patients prospectively at what happened and compared them with a retrospective cohort who had been cared for in the days before they had an ERAS protocol. And what they were looking at was really perioperative outcomes with an emphasis on opioid consumption and patient-reported outcomes in the immediate and extended postoperative period. So the study was, was published in the Green Journal in August 2018. What they did was they had a total cohort of 533 patients. It was cohort one. They participated in the enhanced recovery pathway compared with 74 patients who were in the historical control. So these were, were patients that often be treated by laparotomy operating time for all the patients was 219 minutes with a median of 236 historical controls and 216 minutes for the ERAS group with a range from 33 to 885 minutes. So 885 minutes case to be pretty interesting. That's
0: a big day at the office. That
1: is a big day at the office. Essentially what they found was that implementation of the ERAS program for patients undergoing open abdominal surgery for gynecological indications can improve patient recorded outcomes and significantly decrease the rate of intraoperative and postoperative opioid consumption without compromising pain control. And so they found that increasing compliance with individual ERAS protocol elements was associated with reductions in length of stay and other postoperative complications. They also developed high levels of patient satisfaction which was and also high compliance with the ERAS pathway which they also found decreased length of stay without increasing complications. They felt that this study across that this study just accorded with the results of other studies across different diseases and procedures and so on and they really felt that they could manage their oncology patients just as well in an ERAS program as they could with the previous model which was prolonged length of stay and they also felt that a Possible contributing factor to the demonstrated enhancement in recovery for the ERAS patients may be the decrease in opioid use, the effect that that had on patient symptoms recovery. And in their the population they studied, they demonstrated a striking 72% reduction in median opioid intake in patients on the ERAS pathway without an increase in patient-reported pain scores. That's phenomenal. And they found that 16% of the patients who underwent laparotomy on the ERAS pathway were opioid-free during their hospital stay the day of surgery up to post-operative day three. They felt that that was a significant reason for their improvement. And they felt that that was important because they they also noted that patients that receive an opioid prescription after surgery are 44% more likely than people that that don't use opioids to become long-term opioid users. And we know that this is an immense problem, both in the US, also here. So... I think the the benefits of ERAS are, for me, um, when what I got out of the study was that this study could be applicable to, in some ways, our sickest patients, that is, the, the cancer patients in whom we might expect that they would have a prolonged and often a, a difficult post-operative recovery because of the nature of their surgery. That these patients could be managed safely through an ERAS pathway, that we would do a lot to avoid the use of opioid analgesia or prolonged use of opioid analgesia, Know, commensurate benefits down the track to both those patients and to society, those patients becoming long-term opioid users, and that the emphasis on this was the emphasis on the team aspect of it, that it, you could not just use a little bit of the package, to use the whole package. I think that that's the lesson, I guess, that I would want listeners to get from this podcast is that you can't practice in isolation. You've got to practice as part of a, a healthcare team be continually evaluating and adapting your practices to with best practice. ERAS, to me, looking at this, is something that we really should be adopting and adopting soon in our hospital.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier the lack of patient-focused data, and I think uh, this is one of the first studies to fill that gap. So patients reported a reduction in fatigue, a reduction in interference with their ability to walk. And both of these are massive quality of life indicators for women who've just undergone major abdominal surgery, a cancer diagnosis. Um, I was so impressed by that 16% of patients having open surgery, uh, not using any opioids to, to get them through that event. Um, so I completely agree, Ted, it's time really turn the page on ERAS uh, at our institution but I think there's lots of institutions like ours around Australia who have not adopted these protocols and uh, it's really time for us to get moving and perhaps for some leadership from the college to motivate its membership. This is a big quality of life issue for our patients, Uh, it's a big cost issue and the outcomes are better so how can we not be doing it? take-home message? Oh, is that the take-home message? <laughs> I
1: think that is the take-home message. Cool. and we, we, Again, it's part of advocacy, I guess, for our patients, that we know this evidence is out there, and so we can either ignore it and not try and in- introduce this sort of program in our institutions, or we can go and advocate for the patients under our care, They look, the evidence for this is clear, that we need to be developing policies, procedures, protocols for doing this. We need to be educating and re-educating our healthcare team, our anaesthetic colleagues and our patients, that this is a good thing. Good for them, good for us, good for the bottom line.
0: So the third article from General Club is from the International Anesthesia Research Society, published in 2018, and is entitled Predictors of Admission After the Implementation of an Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Pathway for Minimally Invasive Gynecological Surgery. The authors are Daley Keel uh, and co-authors from North Carolina... And I think this paper answers some important questions of who can't go home after minimally invasive surgery. Uh, this was a prospective observational study looking at women having a laparoscopic hysterectomy or robotic-assisted hysterectomy and compared women with same-day discharge against women requiring admission in a bid to find predictors of admission. It included, again, like the other studies that we've looked at in Journal Club today, it used a post-ERAS uh, protocol implementation group and compared that group against uh, a historical control with prospectively collected data in the post-implementation group um, and comparing those women to retrospectively collected data. So it included 165 women undergoing lap hist or robotic-assisted hysterectomy who were managed using an ERAS pathway. This protocol was implemented because the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Medical Center was the institution in which the study was done. They were trying to respond to a 9% same-day discharge rate for for their lapis and this was again a successful implementation program with uh, this group getting up to a 56% same-day discharge rate. One of the things interesting about this study is they tried to find predictors of why women might stay. So they found common reasons why women were admitted post-operatively were things that we'd expect like urinary retention, quick pain control, stop nausea and vomiting, and then some surgical considerations like extensive adhesiolysis or ureterolysis or bowel resection or hematoma formation. A few women also had some hemodynamic instability with a subsequent requirement for blood transfusion and obviously you can't send those ladies home same day. So they did a logistic regression of, of nine predictors that they thought would be associated with increased rates of admission. Ultimately, they found B that was statistically significant. So African-American patients were two and a half times as likely to require admission than Caucasian patients. Patients with an ASA physical status Three were three times more likely to be admitted than those with an ASA 1 or 2, and patients with an increasing length of procedure were increasingly likely to be admitted. Equally as interesting, the factors that weren't predictive of admission were things like age, BMI, pre-op diagnosis, whether or not they had chronic pain, and the avoidance of long-acting opioids or overall compliance of the ERAS pathway weren't associated with admission. So I think the take home message is there are a few factors that are more likely to predict admission. They essentially non-modifiable because you can't change someone's race. You can't really change their ASA, although you can perhaps optimise them medically before surgery. And the complexity of the surgery, again, a difficult thing to modify.
1: I agree. The, the thing for me was this is quite a small study with only 165 in, in the cohort, so it's not massive by any measure, but a, a reasonably good snapshot of what happened. Um, it's interesting when you look at the non-modifiable risk factors and you look at, looked at um, African-Americans, uh, without generalizing in any way, you'd, you'd wonder whether the Afri- African-Americans from North Carolina maybe. From lower socio-economic groups, they, their nutrition may not have been as good. They may not have, um, may be more likely to smoke. They may be more likely to do a lot of other you know um, things that 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 would socially determine their health. So that's entirely speculative on my part, which I I, I know, but it would be interesting perhaps to look at that group and to try to tease out why um, being a, being African American would would be a risk factor for not being able to abide by an ERAS protocol.
0: I uh, wonder too when you see race as a risk factor about cultural implications and patient expectation yes. around uh, admission or non-admission, 8% of the patients who were admitted admitted uh, because they requested admission not because of a medical or surgical indication and they did not break that down that aspect hmm. down into race so I absolutely can't comment on the data but I do when you see races involved of course you think about socio-economic implications particularly when it's a non-Caucasian population um, but I also wonder about you know patient expectations.
1: Yes yeah, I think so and without wishing to labour the point I and mean, we certainly hear a lot in Australia about about the People in America whose um, healthcare isn't covered in any way by the by the government, with the abolition with the abolition of Obamacare by the Trump administration, and so on, whether these patients are are more likely to be less well compared to their Caucasian counterparts. I, I think the obvious thing is that we need more information about this group. The the other thing, when you look at the generalizability of these things, I mean, lots of units do do. Um, total laparoscopic hysterectomy but you know some units do a lot of vaginal surgery and vaginal hysterectomies would be good to know if if these sorts of studies were realizable to a vaginal hysterectomy cohort. I sent you a paper on
0: same-day discharge in vaginal hysterectomy. I I was just coming to that. I thought you were going to pick it to talk about.
1: I (laughs) I was just going to say because there is some evidence that patients that undergo a vaginal hysterectomy are just as likely to be discharged an ERAS pathway as someone who's had a, a laparoscopic procedure, recognizing that the vaginal um, hysterectomy patients don't have any abdominal incisions. Natural
0: so, orifice surgery. Natural is orifice there surgery. Better?
1: That's right, indeed. So, take home message I think this is just an, an, another study to demonstrate that, that, um, that ERAS can be very effective in reducing length of stay in hospital without compromising patient safety. Um, I think we need more data for different different procedures, but in some ways uh, this study doesn't present anything that's, that's too surprising, that, that if surger- surgery is more complex and the patients are less well before surgery, they may be more likely to, s- to stay in hospital. I think that's a particularly striking finding or surprising finding.
0: Yeah, I guess I included it just to uh, look at the... You know, there are some patients who can't go home same day. Um, and I guess the group, the, the reason why we typically keep patients is because of urinary retention or pain or nausea and vomiting. Um, but that group of women is quite small compared to the majority who are probably fit to go home same day if we use the right approach. Again, it's just we are laboring the point ERAS is safe and it should probably be instituted uh, in australia a bit more
1: readily than it has been yes i agree and i i think as you say it's timely that it is i think that um people often say that we're 20 years behind the americans in, in introduction of changes in health policy so given that the um i think the original eras protocol was published
0: 2001 i um, saw the
1: general in, surgeons yeah 2001 by kellett an early pioneer developed an ERAS protocol in 2001, which was published in Clinical Nutrition. He wrote a paper entitled Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, a Consensus View of Clinical Care for Patients Undergoing Colonic Resection.
0: So historically, the colorectal surgeons began this ERAS push, kind of being quite late to the party.
1: Yes, I agree, and it's interesting that gynecologists were the first to introduce laparoscopic surgery in the modern era, but we've significantly <laughs> dropped the ball on ERAS,
0: I'll also put a link to Aaron Corhey, who we spoke to um, in our caesarean epidemic uh, episode, has published a guideline for the ERAS Society with some other authors in the American Journal of ONG uh, outlining an ERAS approach for caesarean section, which is undoubtedly one of the world's most <laughs> common operations.
1: Okay. Yeah, what are we going to oh. talk about next time? Uh,
0: so next week on COG, I am fortunate to catch the tail end of the... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Health Meeting. And our next episode will actually be hosted by Dr. Kiana Brown, who's an ONG in Darwin, and she's one of the chairs of the Indigenous Women's Health Committee. Uh, So Kiana's kindly agreed to host our Indigenous uh, Women's Health podcast, uh, and I'm really excited to be getting her on board. So that's what's coming up next.
1: Yeah, and I would just say too for our overseas listeners that... um, it's surprising when I've done some work with um, Indigenous care workers in both the US and in Canada. It's surprising how uh, the problems that our Indigenous peoples face are pretty much the same as the problems facing the Indigenous populations of both North America and of Canada. I think that you'll find some of the content that um, Kiana talks about will be highly applicable and relevant to your Indigenous peoples.
0: Otherwise, we'll be catching up with a a range of guests speaking at the Renskog Annual Scientific Meeting in Adelaide. We'll have some great episodes coming up in the coming months. So thanks for joining us on COG.
1: Till next time.